The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. He, Christ Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. The word of the Lord. Will you bow with me in prayer? O God most high, you are holy and good and just and righteous. And we are weak, sinful, selfish, prideful, fearful, But we are made in your image, and we are heirs of your promises through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not on any merit of our own, but out of the completion of your plan and your love for us and your desire to glorify and magnify your name through the plan of redemption that you have worked since before the foundation of the world. We thank you that we can participate in such a mighty work. We thank you that it is not dependent on works that we do, but on our holding and entrusting ourselves to the promises and accomplishments of your Son, Jesus Christ, whose blood covers our sin and whose righteousness makes us acceptable in your sight. I pray that you would meet with all of us now that your Holy Spirit would minister to us, administer grace to us through the message that is coming from our pastor, uh, that all of us here would need and would see the gospel, Christ crucified and resurrected, through your mighty power working in us to empower us to repent of sin, to entrust ourselves to Christ, and to be ministers of the gospel in the world around us. I pray this for all here who have already been captured and transferred into your kingdom by your grace, and for all here who need to be captured, who need to hear the message that though there is a judgment against all sin, that there is a way, a way to eternal life through Jesus, 
our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. I would invite you this morning, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 116. You can also turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to move around a bit. Sort of the devious part of my mind just had a, an idea that I suppressed. Just full confession here. Uh, a couple of months ago, uh, our brother uh, John Butts taught us Psalm 116 on a Wednesday night at, uh, at a first Wednesday. Am I right, John? I'm remembering this. So there was a part of me that wanted to ask you to turn to one, Psalm 116 while John Butts comes up this morning and explains to us this beautiful, this beautiful psalm. I'm going to read Psalm 116, sort of as our, our bouncing off point this morning. The psalmist writes, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress, distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, He saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I'm your servant. I'm your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. What a beautiful psalm. A psalm that celebrates the truth that we serve a God who is a gracious God. I'll tell you the story of a man named John. He was born in 1725. John was raised in a Christian home in which he was taught verses of the Bible from his childhood. The problem came in when John was six years old. It was in that stage of his life that his mother passed away. She was the one who had taught him God's word as a little boy. At which point John was sent off to live with a relative, and it was a relative who happened to hate the Bible. It was a relative who, in fact, not only hated the Bible, but enjoyed mocking Christianity. You can imagine the impact of that on a six-year-old heart. 
The impact was such that eventually John ran away. And he ran away to sea. During those years of seafaring, he was exceptionally wild. He gave himself to licentiousness and to sin. In fact, he had a great reputation for his sin. One of the things he was most known for, I think you'll like this, he was known for being able to swear for two hours without repeating himself. That's something to be known for. I'm in the Navy. I'm around sailors. I'm not even sure I'd know anybody who could do that. He was forced to enlist in the British Navy, but he deserted and was captured and then beaten publicly. Eventually, he got into the Merchant Marine and ended up in Africa. He wrote in his memoirs that he went to Africa for one reason, and this was the one reason. You'll love this. Quote, that I might sin my fill. Be like that. I'm going to go to Africa so I can sin as much as I can possibly sin. Eventually, he fell in with a Portuguese slave trader in whose home he was treated horribly. The slave trader went out to sea and left Newton behind in the charge of his African wife, the chief woman of his harem, who happened to hate all white men and enjoyed venting that anger and hatred on John. She treated him mercilessly, forced him to eat his food off the floor like a dog, was beaten mercilessly. Eventually made his way back to the sea and uh, was picked up by a British ship making its way back to England. The captain found out that he knew something about navigation and made him a first mate. But eventually there, he fell into trouble again. The captain goes ashore. So what does John do? Well, he breaks into the storehouse on the ship where all the rum is. Holds a party. Gets the crew deliriously drunk. He was so drunk himself that when the captain returned and struck him on the head, he fell overboard and almost drowned. He would have drowned if someone hadn't thrown a harpoon over to pull him back in. But everything changed on the sea. As the ship headed back to England and neared Scotland, the ship ran into some awful weather. Terrible storm. A storm that rocked the ship and went on for days. John was sent down into the hold of the ship to try and pump the water out, but it seemed to him a losing battle, and he was certain in the hold of that ship pumping the water that he would die there and that ship would become his grave. It was there, in the hold of the ship, pumping water out furiously, fighting for his life, that the Spirit of God did something remarkable in his life. He brought back to his memory, little pieces of scripture that his mother taught him when he was a little tiny guy. And it was down in the hold of that ship, thinking that he was going to die, living as an outright blatant sinner leading others to sin in every way possible, that he realized that the God he had desperately tried to forget had never forgotten him. And it was there, fighting for his life physically, that the Lord redeemed his soul spiritually. It was there that he knelt before the Lord Jesus, repented of his sin, 
and entrusted himself to Christ. This John made his way to England and he began to study. Christ transformed his life in every way. What he does to every sinner who repents and trusts his life to him. John committed himself to theological study. He eventually became a preacher. A powerful preacher who had remarkable influence in England. And he also became a remarkable poet and writer. We still sing his songs. That's known for... The song that has been the one song that has been recorded more by various people than any other song ever written, the song Amazing Grace. John Newton wrote that song. He was a preacher of grace. He was a man who understood that where sin abounds, God's grace abounds more. He was a man who understood that to be saved, the only way to be saved is by the grace of God. He understood what what we sang a few minutes ago, where sin runs deep, grace is more. And as John Newton reflected on his life later on, and he looks back on the kind of man he used to be, and the kind of life he used to live, And he reflects on the reality that Christ would meet him in a place like that and redeem his soul. The only word, the only adjective that he can think of to describe that kind of grace is the word amazing. Because there is indeed no other way to describe that kind of grace. What is it that's required to transform a vile, obnoxious, rebellious, hedonistic sinner into a child of God? What's required is grace and grace alone. And to him, that was absolutely amazing. It's important to us. It's important enough that we would name a church after it. So we might ought to know what it means, right? Last week you heard a wonderful message on the idea that we are saved by faith alone. Out of the book of Acts by our brother Roger. That salvation comes by faith alone. But once we're agreed upon that, you see other questions are raised. Questions like, well, from where does that faith come If I'm saved by faith alone, where does that faith arrive? Or from where does it come? Does it come from within me? Is it something that's a part of me that I work up? Is it something that I do? Or is it something that comes outside of me that's given to me that I'm able to exercise? The Reformers answered that question. They answered it by saying faith comes to us. The faith by which we are saved comes to us. By grace alone. That's how we arrive at faith. We are saved by grace through faith. And that's the issue to which we turn our attention today. What is this grace that we're talking about? When we say that we are saved by grace alone, what does that mean? Let's first define the word. Uh, What is grace? That word is used all sorts of ways in our culture. 
Maybe when you go tonight to sit down for dinner or lunch after church today, uh, you may bow your heads and somebody around the table may say, who's going to say grace? Now, you don't mean by that they're going to shout at the table, grace, right? That would be fun to do sometimes, just to see how people react. What you mean by that is you're going to say a prayer, right? There's going to be a prayer. In that context, when you use the word grace, you mean a prayer. That's not what the biblical writers typically mean when they use the term grace. We need a clear definition of what we're talking about when we talk about being saved by grace. The most common definition you hear is a three-word definition, that grace is simply God's unmerited favor. God's unmerited favor. And that's not a bad definition. It's very true. Grace, at its heart, is indeed God's unmerited favor. God's favor displayed toward us in ways that were not earned and not deserved. Wayne Grudem gives another definition. I'm going to show you a few, and you just pick which one you like best. Wayne Grudem says this. He says that grace is God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. That's essentially saying the same thing, right? In a different way. God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. It's another way of saying unmerited. A.W. Tozer says it this way. He says that grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. I like that one, too. He essentially captures the same thing. John MacArthur is a little more wordy, shocked. He says... The grace is the free and benevolent influence of a holy God operating sovereignly in the lives of undeserving sinners. All right. And I'll end with Burkhoff, who defines it this way. The unmerited operation of God and the heart of man effected through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Now, you don't need to memorize all of those definitions. What you need to capture in all of them, is that in some way, shape, or form, with some words or the other, they all are saying the same thing. That grace is God's activity in and towards men for their good that they do not deserve and they have not earned in any way. That is grace. That's God being good to us, not because we earn it, not because we deserve it, but because He wants to. This is a major theme in the Bible. Just in the New Testament, in Greek alone, the word charis, translated grace most often, shows up 155 times. And so grace is everywhere in the New Testament. But I want to begin this morning by showing you that grace is not simply a New Testament concept. It is, in fact, something that is displayed in God's very character. And we see this from the beginning of the Bible all the way through. And so let's go first to grace displayed in God's character in the Old Testament. You see, oftentimes I run into people in conversation who will say to me things like this. They'll say, well, you know, God, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. But the God of the New Testament is a God of grace. Have you ever heard somebody say that before? Raise your hand if you've ever heard somebody talk in those terms. Sure you have. As though God has a split personality, right? Either we've got two gods or the one God is is a split personality and he used to be one kind of God and now he's a different. Well, that's nonsense. And I want to show you, that's why we looked at Psalm 116. Because I want you to see that from the very beginning, grace and graciousness 
has been a foundation of the very character of God himself. His nature is grace. We saw this. We're not going to look at this whole entire psalm. There's just no time this morning. I just want to, I want to show you out of this the foundation of God's nature. Psalm 116, verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous and he's merciful. Gracious is the Lord. In fact, the entire psalm is a celebration of the grace of God. And you see this as you just sort of catch the general flow of the psalm, right? It begins in verse 3 by saying, The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. What does that sound like to you? When you hear that language, what, what kind of imagery pops into your mind? What pops into my mind is someone who is, uh, is sinking in water, who is wrapped up by ropes or, or, or strings of some sort, and is drowning and going down. That's the imagery that pops into my mind. That word snares can be translated cords, lines, ropes, and even a noose. However the imagery pops into your mind from the poetry, the reality is this. This man is saying, at a certain point in my life, I was utterly hopeless and utterly helpless. And I was going down. We capture that, right? I was going down. These ropes of death are around me. The grave is, is pulling me toward it, and I am suffering, and I am in anguish. He's declaring his utter inability to rescue or save himself. He is saying, unless God does something, I will die. I am going down, and I'm going down fast, and unless God intervenes, I will die. That's his condition. But verse 4 tells us what he does. What do you do when you realize that you're sinking and going down and you're hopeless and you're helpless and you can do nothing about your condition and you're about to die? What do you do in that moment? You do what this guy does in verse 4. He says, and then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. You look up and you cry out to the only one who could possibly help you. That's what he does. The only thing he could do was to cry out to God. He knew he could not rescue himself. His only hope was that God might hear his cry. And his only hope was that God might just turn out to be gracious. The song was written long after the psalm was written. I'm talking about the song we just sang a few minutes ago. But the psalmist understood the truth that we sang. He knew when he looked up to God, he's the only one who can rescue. He's the only one who can save. He is the only one that could reach down and rip this guy up out of the grave that he was headed towards. And so he cries to him. Verse 6 tells us, the Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, that is when I was in that condition, what happened? He saved me. I cried out to the Lord, and my only hope is that He would hear and that He would turn out to be gracious. And the psalmist declares, you know what? Guess what? He heard, and it so turns out that indeed, He's gracious. That's what He did. Verse 8, for you have delivered my soul from death. The psalmist declares He's a God who saves. He's a God who delivers souls from death, not because they deserve it, not because they meet Him halfway, 
but simply because that is his nature. He is gracious. It's who he is. He is a God who delights to save those who don't deserve to be saved. He is a God who delights to save those who know that they cannot save themselves. He delights to save those who cry out to Him, knowing that He is their only hope. That's who God is. And that's who God has always been. Just a quick survey of the Psalms tells us that what the psalmist in 116 tells us is true. Look at Psalm 86 and 103, 111 and 145. I mean, I just give you, look at these. 86, 15. You, O Lord... Are a God merciful and what? And gracious. 103.8. The Lord is merciful and gracious. 111 verse 4 is another one that tells us the same thing. He has caused wondrous works to be remembered. Why? Because the Lord is he's gracious. Verse, one, verse 8 of 145. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Are you seeing the theme here? They're saying it almost exactly alike. That makes me believe that maybe they've heard it somewhere before. Does it make you believe that? And they have, indeed. Exodus chapter 34. You may remember Exodus chapter 34. Moses is going back up to Mount Sinai for a second attempt at the Ten Commandments. You remember he got them for the first time, busted them, had to go back, get them again. Second time, Exodus 34. Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. He rose early in the morning and he went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. He took in his hand two tablets of stone. And what happens when he gets to the top? Well, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there. And the Lord proclaimed the name of the Lord. How does he do that? Well, here's how he does it. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and what? And gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Oh, it looks like this must be the source of where the psalmist all heard this. They heard it from whom? From God himself. You understand in Exodus chapter 34, when he shows up to Moses, he could have said anything about himself to Moses. But one of the key things that he wants Moses to know is about his character, about his nature, is that he self-identifies as gracious. That's a word that's thrown around an awful lot in our culture right now, how people self-identify. When you look at that in our culture, you realize how confused people are when they tell you that they self-identify as things that they clearly are not. But God is never confused about who he is. And when he self-identifies, he tells you exactly who he is. And he says, here's what you need to know about me. I am a God who is gracious. He doesn't start out by saying, I'm a God who's angry or I'm a God who is wrathful, although he is those things. He wants Moses to understand that he's gracious. That he's gracious. That he's a God who loves to give unmerited favor to men. But we see it before Exodus 34. If you flip a few more pages over into Genesis, the book of Genesis, and we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You remember the story, don't you? Garden of Eden, Adam, Eve, right? Don't eat of the fruit. If you eat of the fruit, you will surely die, right? That's the instruction. If you eat, you will die. They ate. 
Genesis tells us the eyes of both of them were open and they sewed fig leaves together. Well, what in the world is that about? The moment that they ate, the moment that they sinned, they no longer were righteous and innocent. They were now sinful and guilty. And that manifested in various ways. One of those ways was a recognition that they were naked and that they needed to do something about that. So they go about it, about dealing with that by, by making garments out of what? Fig leaves, right? Fig leaves. That makes sense. Until God comes along and confronts them about this. And so God comes into the garden, and you know the story. He confronts them, and he says, You remember what I told you? That if you eat of it, you will surely die. And right there, in that moment, God killed them in the garden. You should be doing this, because that's not the story. If you're not doing this, and I'm suspicious, you might be dozing off. That's not what happens in the story. What does God do? God would have... If he was at that moment primarily intending to display his justice, that is exactly what he would have done. Or if he was intending in that moment to display his holiness, that is exactly what he would have done. But verse 21 of Genesis 3 tells us, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Why is that important? Because God is... Just. And he is not self-contradictory. So God comes along and says that there is a price for your sin and it's death. But he diverts that penalty to another. He kills an animal. It loses its life in order for him to make for them a garment to wear, to cover their sin and their recognition of their sin. They literally wore a reminder of two things. That their sin was serious, but their God was gracious. That's what that's about. They understood that their sin was serious because someone died because of it. But they also understood that their God was gracious because it wasn't them. You see, God is gracious. He's always been gracious. As we trek through the Old Testament and we go through the sacrificial system and we see the Old Testament Israelites going to the temple and animal after animal after animal after animal being sacrificed, the whole system is set up as a reminder to God's people of those two truths. Your sin is serious, but your God is gracious. That's what it's all about. But the constant activity of that in the Old Testament tells us something else. It tells us that this... Diverting of the penalty to animals is not a permanent solution because it has to keep going on and over and over and over again. But we find if we flip a few more pages over to the book of Isaiah that there's more grace to come. When we see Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6, we're told by Isaiah that there's someone coming. And although Isaiah speaks of it in past tense terminology, he's talking about something that's yet to happen. I don't know what's causing that. Just bear with me because it's bugging me like it's bugging you. I'm telling you. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. And he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, or by his wounds, we are healed. All that we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What a wonderful truth to people who are wrapped up in a sacrificial system that never ends. That God is one day going to deal with this once and for all. That there's, a, uh, there's one coming. There's one coming. There's a, there's a servant who's coming. And here's what's going to happen. He's going to bear our griefs. He's going to carry our sorrows. The totality of our sin is one day going to be laid on him. And what's going to happen to him once that happens? He's going to be pierced for our violations of God's law. He's going to be crushed for our impurities. He's going to be wounded in order that we might be healed. God planned this, and God will surely execute His plan. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53, It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. Why does Isaiah make that point? Why does God make that point? Because He wants us to know that the entirety of salvation is an act of grace by God. It is all an act of grace by God. God is gracious in saving us from beginning to end. There is no human activity, no human cooperation really even involved. It is a gracious plan of a gracious God who will execute it without assistance. It's the will of the Lord for this to happen. There's no contingency in that statement, is there? By the time the Old Testament closes, here's what we know. We know God is a gracious God. We don't know fully how we can be ultimately and finally made right with Him yet. And we're left with some questions. What will this look like in detail? And how will this grace operate in saving me as an individual? Two questions that we're left with at the end of the Old Testament. When we open the New Testament, God answers both of them. In the Gospels, he, opens the, he answers the question of the first one. What is this going to look like, this Isaiah of prophecy? Because we see God coming in human flesh, born among men, that very servant that Isaiah prophesied. We see him in living color, right? And we see him live, and we see his perfection, and we hear his teaching, and we see his righteousness, and we see him go to the cross where he dies and is buried and raised again. And we see in full exactly what Isaiah was prophesying all those years before. The servant has come. But the second question, how will this grace operate in saving me? We do begin to see in the Gospels. But we see it most excellently described in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. So I want to cause us, if you will, just track with me in history here. We've started in the Old Testament establishing that God is what kind of a God? He's gracious and has always been gracious. So as we look toward the cross from the Old Testament, we know God is gracious. Now I'm going to jump across the cross to the other side. And we're going to join Paul and the Ephesian believers looking back on the cross, on the finished work of Christ. And we're going to look back and we're going to see him explain to us how that grace of God operates in saving lost people. Okay, are you tracking with me? That's what Ephesians 1 and 2 is going to help us with. He begins this whole Ephesians 1 and 2 by reviewing. This whole book, this whole letter is, 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 is really launched by Paul reviewing with the Ephesian believers their salvation and how it's come about, how it is that they are saved. 
and how it is that God has saved them. And he wants them to remember all these things because it seems to appear at least that perhaps they've forgotten these things. And he wants to remind them because in reminding them, it's going to drive them to wonder and awe and thanksgiving and worship of God in perhaps some ways that they've let slide. And so he goes back and he wants them to see that the God who displayed himself in his nature as gracious in the Old Testament is a God who displays himself as gracious in his gospel. In the good news. And so Ephesians, let's just jump in to chapter 1 and make two points. In the first chapter, he, he reminds us how God, what steps God has taken in His grace to save us. And then in chapter 2, he causes us to look from the human perspective backwards at our salvation and see God's grace, how it operates. And I'll just state these things quickly. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why does he point this out? Why does he want them to really land here? He wants to remind them that God's grace is displayed in vivid color in his electing to save lost sinners who cannot save themselves. He wants them to remember that. He says to them, way before there ever was a you, your gracious Father made a decision to save your soul. Before there was a you, before you lived, before you did anything, He chose you in Him. He determined to save you. That's grace. There's no merit, right? We can't earn anything if we're not alive when it happens. Fair enough? And he's clear. When did this happen? Before the foundation of the world. Well, when was that? It was a long time ago. Revelation 13, verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. That's the beast of Revelation 13. Everyone whose name has not been written. When? Before the foundation of the world. Where? And the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Again, the grace of God in choosing to save people who have not even lived yet, much less been able to do anything to merit their salvation. Why does He do such a thing? Why would God choose to save people who aren't even alive and who haven't done anything and who can't contribute anything? Well, verse 6 of Ephesians 1 tells us. He does this in verse 6. He says, to the praise of His glorious... What do you think? His glorious grace. To the praise of His glorious grace. Why? Because that's how He is. He is a gracious God. That's why He does it. In verse 7 it says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. So God the Father chooses us, and that displays His grace. But God the Son actually redeems us as another display of grace. Redemption just means to purchase in order to set free. It has the connotation of slavery. It's the idea that one is enslaved and can do nothing to get out of his enslavement. And so someone else comes along and pays a price to purchase their freedom in order to set that slave free. And here we have this word redemption that captures all of that. And what he is saying is you need to remember that you were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. You were enslaved to sin, but God is gracious to you. You were hopeless and helpless in in your enslavement. Yet the gracious God sent His Son to pay a price to purchase your freedom. Why would He do that? 
Why would he do that for people who are slaves who can't do anything for themselves? Well, he says, according to the riches of his grace, because that's the kind of a God he is. Sin is serious, but God is, say it with me, gracious. Yeah. We're going to stay here until you guys get those two statements. I'm just telling you right now. No, I'm just kidding. He's been redeemed by the blood of Christ. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you are not your own. You've been what? Bought with a price. You've been bought with a price. Why did he do it? Because of the riches of his grace. Because that's who he is. But when we get to Ephesians 2, and this is the landing point here for sola gratia. That we're saved by grace alone. He shows us that grace is not only displayed in the character of God, it's not only displayed in the gospel of God's electing and redeeming us, but it's distinguished from works in chapter 2. This is what we need to capture as our landing point moving forward. After reminding them of the grace of God in choosing them, he reminds them of their previous condition before they were saved. And you were, verse 1 of chapter 2, dead in your trespasses and sins in, once you, in, in which you once walked following the course of the world. You need to remember that when Christ saved you, you were dead in your sins. Dead means exactly that. Dead. It doesn't mean on life support. It means dead. Dead people cannot do anything to bring themselves back to life. Right? Ignore all the zombie movies that are out there right now. Dead people stay dead. He says you were separated from Christ. You were children of wrath. You were without hope. Not only does he want them to remember that they were dead in their sin, but they were hopelessly separated from Christ, and they were destined for the wrath of God on their sin. That was their condition. But there's a huge but in chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in His mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, what did He do? He made us alive. God made us alive. When we were dead, He made us come to life. He said to our dead corpse of a soul, wake up. And life was born. The point here is simply this. Unless God acts first, dead people stay what? They stay dead. They stay dead. Unless God sovereignly brings dead people to life, they stay dead. Here's the point. In order for a person to be saved, just like Roger taught us last week, we must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That means we believe on Him by faith. However, before anyone could ever do that, God must first act in the grace of regeneration and resurrect the dead corpse of their soul and make them alive in order to exercise their faith. Do you see that connection? Dead men can't believe. Dead men can't exercise faith. Dead men can do nothing. So when Paul says, God has made you alive, he's talking about the theological word regeneration, but other words we use are born again, quickened to life, made alive. 
He's talking about the moment when our dead soul comes to life and our dead conscience wakes up to the reality of God and our blind eyes who have been absolutely blind to God and His truth awaken and see it in all of its glory and color. That's what God does. If you're a Christian here this morning, that's what happened to you. Yet at one point you were dead. You were walking around and you were talking to people, but you were dead. Kind of like a zombie, but you looked better. But in your soul, you were as dead as a carcass, separated from God, a child of wrath, headed for destruction with no hope. But at some point, God did something in you you could never do for yourself. He made you alive. He opened your eyes. He opened your understanding. He placed within you a willingness to do what you've never been willing to do before. He caused you to see truths that you were utterly oblivious to before that. And in verses 8 and 9, what it says to us here is that this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not the result of works. Listen, God made you alive and you did nothing for that. It's not your works. It didn't happen because you did something. It happened because God is gracious. And He acted in grace toward you and you didn't deserve it. But He did it anyway. It's not your works. It's not your own doing. At any stage of the process, it is not your own doing. God is the one who saves. And if God doesn't act first, you will never act. And if He doesn't continue it all the way through, you'll never get to the end. Philippians 1, He who began a good work in you will what? He'll be faithful to complete it. He is the one who begins it, and He is the one who ultimately completes it. That doesn't mean we're passive and we sit around twirling our thumbs doing nothing. It just means... That our efforts at the end of the day are not the things that save us. It's the grace of God alone. Are you tracking? Charles Spurgeon said this. I would cease to preach if I believed that God in the matter of salvation required anything whatever of man which he himself had not engaged to furnish. Salvation is of the Lord. The Lord has to apply it to make the unwilling willing. To make the ungodly godly. To bring the vile rebel to the feet of Jesus, or else salvation will never be accomplished. You see, that's what happened in the hold of that ship while bailing water to John Newton. In a moment, this vile sinner who was living in as open, much of an open rebellion against God as he possibly could, in that dark little hole, God worked this miracle. He opened his eyes, he made that dead man come to life. Through the agency of his word, he reminded him of truth and revealed himself to him and he regenerated him. And all of a sudden, this God who he's forgotten and been running from is displayed in his mind in all of his glory. And he can do nothing other than to run to him and receive what he offers. It's all about grace. So why does that matter? It matters because what Paul says here, He says this is all about grace. It's the gift of God, not the result of your works, so that no one may boast. You see, here's the deal. If I contribute anything to my salvation, then I have a reason to boast. I have a reason to rob God of His glory and claim some of it for myself. Even if I say, well, God really does save me by His grace, I just do this little teeny tiny part over here. That's mine. God does it all, but I activate it by doing something. 
exercising faith or receiving or whatever language we use there. God's done the lion's share, but I do my little part. You see, we're a team in this. It doesn't work like that. We're no team. He begins it and he ends it. And if we're saved, it's all of grace. And we have no reason to boast before him or before anyone else. You see, that's what truly makes grace amazing. What truly makes it amazing is we've done nothing to deserve it. If we believed, we're only believing because he's first opened our eyes and given us the grace to see. He's changed our will that we now desire what we never desired before. He's opened our understanding that we grasp things that we never grasped before. We did nothing to deserve it. We did nothing to earn it. We do nothing to contribute to it. We are recipients. We are not contributors. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton understood that. He was a wretch. Once was lost. But now I'm found. I used to be blind. But right now, I see. Why? Because God is a God who is gracious. And that grace is amazing. It's amazing. Well, our time is up. What are the implications of this? There's so much more richness to talk about in relation to this idea. But you grasp it. If you're a Christian here today, you need to know if you are saved, you are saved by grace alone. Whatever you've done in the process is a result. It's not an, it's not an activator. It's the result of what God has already done in you first. God is not, like some people try to present to me today, sitting up in heaven saying, okay, I did my part, now I'm going to wring my hands and hope somebody down there is going to pick me one day. No. God God saves who He intends to save, start to finish. And if you're a Christian, it's because He intended to save you. It's not because of you deserve it. It's not because you're better than anyone else. It's not because you're more spiritual than anyone else. It's not because you understand His Word better than anyone else. It's not because you live more righteously than anyone else. It's solely because He chose to be gracious to you, and you don't deserve it. Nor do I. What are the implications if we really understand this? I'm going to put them on the screen just so you'll see them because they're obvious. If we really understand that that's how we're saved, by grace alone then it absolutely obliterates spiritual pride. I have absolutely no ground for walking around, strutting like a peacock, so that other people can look at my wonderful righteousness. As though somehow I've had something to do with that. It's like going into someone else's house and taking their championship trophy and running around acting like it's yours. We look at somebody who does that and we'll say, well, your name's not on that. That's stupid. What are you prancing around in your pious righteousness for? It's not yours. It's God's. It's very easy for pride to creep into the life of believers and for us to begin to think we're somebody and that we do something. If I did nothing to gain my salvation, I have nothing to boast about and I have everything to be grateful for. It also tells us nobody's beyond hope, right? If old John in the bottom of that ship who could cuss for two hours and never repeat himself. 
If God could reach down and rescue him by grace, there's nobody beyond the reach of God's grace. I hear people sometimes say to me, you know what, I've just done so much, I don't, I don't believe I can ever be made right with God. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've, how I've hurt people. You don't know how I've sinned. You don't know the kind of regret and pain I live with because of the choices I've made in my life. You don't know what kind of rebellion I've lived in against the Lord. And my answer to that is always the same. You know what? And I don't need to because it's irrelevant. Where sin abounds, God's grace is more. Where sin runs deep, His grace is more. There is sufficient grace in the nature of God and flowing from what happened at the cross to save every sinner of the vilest stripe. If that's you this morning and you're thinking those thoughts, you need to understand something. You just need to lay down that whole concept that you need to do something to make yourself right before God because you can't. The only thing you can do is what the psalmist in Psalm 116 did, right? I cried out to the Lord. I cried out to the Lord, Lord, save me. With the hope that He'll hear you and with the hope that He'll turn out in the end to be what? Gracious. And the New Testament tells us that He promises that anyone who ever does that, cries out to Him like that, will both be heard and will also find Him to be gracious. He will never turn away that prayer. Ever. You're not beyond hope this morning if you don't know Christ. I don't care how dark your past. The third implication is that our God is gracious. And that whole foundation of grace is doing for others what they do not deserve and what they have not earned. And if we're Christians, we want to be like Him, right? This is the application for Christians who are already understand they're saved by grace alone. It's not enough to rest in the fact that we're saved by grace alone, but we're being transformed in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, who by nature is gracious and calls us to be like Him. So that means, if I understand this rightly, that I have absolutely no grounds for engaging with other people in ways that are arrogant, in ways that demand justice for their actions, in ways that assert my rights or place demands on other people to act a certain way because of something they've done. If it's God's grace to give us good things that we don't deserve, then that looks in our life like rubbing shoulders with other people who perhaps have hurt us, who perhaps have offended us, who perhaps have done all sorts of evil things that we don't approve of, and we do good things for them. Not because they deserve it, not because they've earned it, but because we want to be like Jesus and model grace. There's something good for the soul as a believer when we do good for people who do evil towards us simply because that's how God is. And when we do that, we're acting like Him. I don't know who in your life has wounded you or hurt you. I don't know who said evil, you know, evil or ugly things to you. I don't know who has sinned against you or who you're looking at at the moment and thinking that their life is ungodly and wrong in all these different ways. But whoever that is in your life, I challenge you, Christian, this week. Do something actively just to 
be gracious to them. To do good for them. That you don't think they deserve. And that you require them to do nothing to earn it. Just be gracious. And I promise you, whether they receive it well or they don't, they'll be shocked probably. But you'll walk away going, you know what? There's something good for my soul in acting like Jesus and being gracious. We're saved by grace alone. It matters. It matters. Let's pray. Oh God, you are gracious and merciful. It is who you are. And God, we couldn't be more thrilled about that. Forgive us for not acting like your grace is amazing. Forgive us for acting often like your grace is boring. Forgive us for acting like your grace is irrelevant. Forgive us for being unimpressed so often by your grace. Forgive us for the times we are absolutely living with ingratitude in our hearts toward you because we have reason to be nothing but grateful. Because you've been gracious to us and we didn't deserve it and didn't earn it. Our sin was so serious. A rebellion against our Creator, the God of the universe. But even though our sin was serious, we know you, our God, are gracious. And we celebrate your grace. We revel in your grace. We praise you for your grace. Because without it, we're lost. Without it, we're hopeless. Without it, we are undone. And we go down. Oh God, thank you for being gracious to us. Destroy sin, the sin of pride in our hearts. Destroy any attitude that rises up and begins to think that we're somebody because we think we've done something righteous and good or that we're better than the next guy. We've contributed nothing. You've done everything. Our only response is gratitude to you and love for our neighbor. If there's somebody in here this morning, Lord, who thinks they're beyond hope, that they're too vile of a sinner, that they could never make themselves right before you, impress upon their hearts that they need to stop trying right this second and cry out to you. That they might know that you'll hear them and that you'll show yourself gracious to redeem them. And God, we finally pray for ourselves and one another that we are a church called Grace. We pray that the reality would be that when we navigate with one another and when we walk outside of these walls and navigate with other people, that that would be the thing they walk away thinking, man, that guy is gracious. That lady treated me in ways that I don't deserve. She did good to me even though I was evil to her. That does not come natural to us, God. But we want to be like you. So make us gracious, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.